Jennifer Marshall is a Hollywood actress and a Navy veteran. And on this episode of Mission Daily, Jennifer divulges her path from active duty to the red carpet of the City of Angels. The struggles she dealt with during the early days of civilian life, the importance of her mental health, and why authenticity will take you where you really want to go. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. Today on Mission Daily, we have Jennifer Marshall. She is a Navy veteran, and she's now an actress, host, and all forms of entertainment. She's going to fill us in today about what it was like coming out of the military and then also getting into Hollywood. And we're going to also find out a little bit about what she has in store for the future. Jennifer, welcome to Mission Daily. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a work in progress for months now. Well, I'll tell you what, booking is always crazy. I'm sure your schedule's busy, but our schedule gets rearranged all the time too from people canceling and demanding reschedules and then we have paid sponsors. It's not always easy. Yeah, it gets a little crazy. Well, thanks for doing the show and thanks for carving out a period of time for us. Thank you so much for having me. So where are you today right now? Location-wise. So so I'm in Los Angeles. Today is a very rare day off. So I'm actually in my robe, in my bed with my cat. So it's a good day. (laughs) So we always like to talk about what you're doing today, a little bit how you got here, and then what's going on for the future. So what are you working on now? And I don't know if you can even disclose, but hopefully you can. Oh, gosh. So unfortunately, I can't. As actors or, you know, anyone in front of the camera or behind the camera in entertainment, we most of the time we sign non-disclosure agreements. And that's just because, you know, different studios compete. They don't want people knowing who's on their projects. So I actually am working on something really great. I'm working on two projects. Uh, Today, I have the day off. And so I've got some downtime. And I'm enjoying the downtime because once we ramp up and we start shooting, it's going to be a couple months of, you know, relentless uh, 12 to 16 hour days on set, uh, six or seven days in a row. So I'm, I'm definitely enjoying this downtime for the rest of January. Okay, so I want to dive into that. Let's dive into that right away. You're famously known as being a Navy vet. So the military is generally regarded as a very difficult, demanding job. And then there is, I would say, a notion or this idea, it's probably false, and I think it's false, that actors and actresses have it quite easy. Yet you just talked about 12 to 16 hour days, six to seven days a week. Tell me, what is harder? Is it the military or doing your role today? You know, it depends because when I was on deployment in the military, that is very difficult. I would say that most of the sets that I go on, I am either co-starring, which is just, you know, a few lines or one scene on a show. That can be um, pretty easy because you're in your trailer most of the day, you're relaxing, you're waiting, you know, you're prepared for when they need you. If you're guest starring, it's a little more crazy because you're in several scenes or you're in one very long scene that can be quite difficult. Uh, With the show that I'm hosting right now, Mysteries Decoded, that is very difficult to shoot because I'm in every scene. It's my show. I'm hosting it. And so there is no downtime. I don't have a trailer. I basically just go in the car if I need to relax for a few minutes. But I'm interviewing all the witnesses. I'm interviewing all of the experts. And so occasionally my co-host will interview somebody. But it is. It's very taxing. It's 12 to 16 hours on set. And um, there's not a lot of downtime. So I would say that that in comparison to deployment, 
both are difficult in their own way. And, you know, being on deployment was definitely more physically difficult. But when you are in front of a camera and you're hosting a show, you have to be on, you have to be, you know, intelligent, you have to know what you're talking about, you have to be quick witted, you have to be able to pivot very quickly, you have to be adaptable. So I find deployment to be physically taxing, but I find hosting the show to be very intellectually demanding. And I'm drained by the end of the day for sure. Now, I got a quick question for you. So you're talking about 12 to 16 hour days. You're talking about six to seven days a week, but a very small percentage of what you do, all the work that you do actually ends up in the final product. Is that, is that, <laughs> is that disheartening or is that, is that just something you've got become used to? No, you know, thank you so much for bringing that up because it's, you know, people don't understand, like, especially with my show, they'll say, well, you didn't bring up this theory or that theory or this theory. And I always tell them there are so many theories that we look at, but, you know, when we shoot hours and hours and hours of footage, you know, we only have 41 minutes in the show and there's so much that does not get shown. So there's so many different theories that we do evaluate, but it just doesn't make it into the show. So, you know, additionally, um, there was a show that I was in uh, probably two years ago called Timeless on NBC. And I shot on that show for five days. Well, it turns out that one of the scenes I was in, they completely cut and it was a lot of us that were in the scene. And then another scene that I was in, they cut my lines. And it didn't have anything to do with performance. Um, it just had to do with how the scene was set up and that it wasn't really conducive to kind of go into the trench where we were and get the lines because of the hectic nature of the scene. So I shot for five days and it doesn't look like I shot for five days in the final cut. So um, when you're watching, whatever you're watching, if you have an actor or a host in your life, be kind because sometimes <laughs> it's difficult. You know, you give a few days or a few weeks of your life to something and sometimes it just doesn't show that in the final cut. Yeah. So the reason why we're having you on this guest, of course, as you know, Mission is a veteran-owned company. Having veterans that are back into or assimilating into civilian life is always part of the themes that we always want to explore here at Mission. I want to kind of take it back. We did a little homework on you. There's a lot of stuff where you talk about when you were working actively in the military and then a little bit about your world in Hollywood, but you didn't go straight from the military to Hollywood. There's this period of time, I have it on record from 04 to 11, where not much is known about what you were doing. What were you doing during that time? <laughs> Not much is known about what I was doing. Um, yes, that's true. I was not a CIA asset or, you know, an undercover agent or something. So when I got out of the military, I was actually quite sick. I had gotten sick from the anthrax shots and I had been in five years by that point. I had wanted to reenlist and I just could not because of my health. So the first two years, um, I was going to community college part-time as much as my health could allow, but I was actually quite ill. And I took that time to recover, try to get better, try to take care of myself. And it was a difficult time. Um, people look at me now and they think, oh, you know, you're great. You're in great shape. Everything's good. But it was a, a difficult time mentally and physically. And a part of me did feel a little bit betrayed because I served my country. I loved my country. I would do anything for my country and to, you know, suffer mentally, emotionally, and physically as a result of inoculations that I did not feel were tested adequately. That was a, a really difficult thing for me to swallow. I went from being a long distance runner and a basketball player to being in a bed 18 hours a day. Wow. So that was a really difficult period in my life. At that point, I was going to school part-time, trying to get some classes in. I couldn't really go full-time 
And I kind of started dabbling in acting by that point. There was a local acting studio. And it was funny because my friend had said, well, I made $400 on this local commercial in one day's of work. And I said, well, you know, I'm not at the point where I could work full time yet, but if I could work one day and make $400, I wouldn't have to have a full-time job because at that point I could not work a nine to five. Wow. That's actually how I started looking into acting. And I was taking a class probably one night a week at a local acting studio. After that, I transferred to Virginia Wesleyan University. I finished my bachelor's. I have a dual bachelor's in international politics and Spanish with a minor in history. And I went to grad school for a year at Old Dominion University for international politics. At that time, uh, we decided to relocate to California. Ironically, not to be an actor, but to go into police work. I wanted to be a police officer. So when I moved out to Los Angeles in 2011, it was to attend the LAPD Academy. I had an injury in the LAPD Academy and that redirected me. So when I got out of the police academy, my husband said, you need to get a job. And I said, the <laughs> only thing I've ever been is a sailor, an actor, and a police recruit. This isn't a great bag of skills that I have. And so I said, maybe I'll try to be an actor because I'd done some local things in Virginia. And uh, you know, thankfully that worked out, but in 95% of cases, it most certainly does not work out. So what is the time frame now? You're now no longer in the police academy. What is the year now? So I was hired by LAPD in 2012. And so I had left the police academy, I believe, in January of 2013 after four and a half months, um, which I graduated at six months. So how bittersweet. So by March of 2013, I said, well, I, I have to get my butt in gear and I have to try to make it happen in Los Angeles. And so that first year, I did a year of yes. I went on every single audition offered to me, whether it was something I thought was a decent project or not. I think there was only probably two auditions I missed that whole year. And the first was what I thought was probably a snuff film where I thought I would be murdered in the parking <laughs> And then the other I just thought was probably sex trafficking or something. And I, I thought maybe I should not do that. But I did. I went on every single audition and it paid off in dividends because a lot of other actors said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm above that. I, I'm not going to waste my time. And there were so many projects that Later, uh, people had money, people had connections, people had status, and they reached out to me and said, hey, do you remember when you auditioned for me five, six years ago when I was a nobody? Do you want to work on this project now? So when you were doing this, it sounds like it was more out of necessity rather than, or did you already have stars in your eyes? Because when you first kind of got introduced to acting, you were talking about, you know, if I could make $400 in a day, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, it sounds like, you know, you had a dream of police work that didn't work out. Your husband's kind of on your back, like, hey, listen, you need to get a job. <laughs> so, like, Rightfully were... so, right? Los Angeles <laughs> is so expensive. So rightfully so. Well, so when you were going out into the acting field, did you have stars in your eyes? You were like, wow, I'm going to be a superstar. Or were you more like, I, I just need to find work and I think I can do this. No, no, no. I, funny enough, I've never had stars in my eyes. I still don't have stars in my eyes. It was never something where I thought, oh, Jennifer Marshall is going to be an actress. That was never a thought. That's still not a thought process. It was just more, you know, I think because of things that I went through in the military, I'm just very emotionally accessible. And I know that that's weird because many veterans are not emotionally accessible. Most of us are cut off. But for me, I realized that, you know, the emotion that we show in the military is seen as a weakness, but Hollywood applauds it. Hollywood, to many extents, applauds mental illness. So when veterans are getting out, you know, we have these issues and we're struggling with these things. And the military would say, you know, suck it up, 
go get help, but don't be, you know, too poor me about it. You know, it's, it's not really favorably looked upon, but Hollywood looks at it as thank you for being so open about it. Thank you for being so honest about it. So I saw it as an opportunity to, instead of go to therapy and have to pay the therapist, I saw it as, as an opportunity to just use those feelings and emotions that I had regarding my service and get paid for it, if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, it does. Generally, when people think of military service and what happens, it's like this toughness that gets built into you. It's like, if you don't have it, they'll build it in within you to have this wherewithal. And I'm assuming that had to have happened. Plus, you're going into an industry where, like you just said, rejection is really high. So you have to be able to deal with that constantly to ultimately achieve that goal. You know what I always tell people? Because my husband said, you're not good with rejection or people telling you that you know they don't like you or they chose someone else. You're not good with that. Your confidence is not where it needs to be. And this was, you know, maybe 10 years ago. You know, if it's an attack on my personal skills, yes, because I am very confident in what I do. I'm very good at what I do. And I don't really take that lightly. Now, if somebody said, Jennifer, you're a horrible skateboarder and we're really going to hire somebody who's better, I would say, well, absolutely, because I am a terrible skateboarder. <laughs> but if you're going to say, you know, you weren't a good sailor, that's something that's just patently untrue. And, and I would take that personally. So one thing that people have to remember about acting or anything like it, it doesn't matter if I am the best at what I do, because if I'm the best six foot tall redhead at what I do, and they're looking for a five foot tall blonde, they will take a mediocre five foot tall blonde over an exceptional six foot tall redhead. And there's nothing that I can do about that. So putting all of my emotions and hopes and self-worth into, oh, I want to be what they want me to be. It's pointless. As an actor, you have to go in, present what you have, be confident in what you have and who you are, and leave it on the table. And I've really surprised my husband with how little I care as far as I go in, I perform, I leave. Many actors allow the rejection to get to them because they try to decipher what casting wants and, oh, how can I be what they need? It's a waste of time. You'll never know what they need. And sometimes they don't even know what they need. So go in, be you, deliver an authentic, organic performance and leave. And most of the time they'll love you. They'll accept you for who you are. And sometimes they won't like you. Even Meryl Streep has haters. So you can't get wrapped up in, oh, I just want to be accepted and I want to be this. You know, perform the scene to the best of your ability and get the heck out of there and don't think twice about it. Or honestly, this will just completely tear you up. So talk about a little bit about those early days. You know, you're out there reading, you're probably being told no. You kind of said that you read for things that you thought were probably not best for you. How long before I guess you had someone say yes, where you also wanted to do the project? Well, actually, I actually booked my first audition. So it wasn't, you know, something wow. okay. Where- Right. So it wasn't now to be fair, it was a student film. It was a thesis film. So those are harder to book because, you know, those are films that have tens of thousands of dollars behind them. The directors tend to be very picky. It's kind of like their, you know, project showcasing what they can do to the world. But with that being said, there were plenty of times that I was told no. One, I will say the one thing that consistently annoyed me was coming into the business, I would say I was military and I would be brought in for military roles based off of that. But the feedback I would get is, you don't look military. And that was so frustrating to me. because What, as a, what do they mean by that? You don't what do they military. mean? <laughs> you know, and several people did say, you know, you're not butch enough. You're not this. You're not that. One casting director said, you're not ethnic. I said, you know, there are white people in the military. That's really <laughs> just kind of a soft racism that you're 
you know, <laughs> going at me right now. So it was very frustrating. And, and so finally I had to go out first. I made a PSA about what a female veteran looks like. I got together with a friend of mine. Uh, we made 15 PSAs. We got together to make one and we ended up making 15 because I wanted to open up people's, you know, POVs. But then I went home and I, I wrote a scene and I wore a uniform and I went and shot the scene and I submitted it. And all of a sudden casting could see me as military. So sometimes you really have to kind of show them this is what military looks like. And honestly, we're just a microcosm of society. So we look like anyone else. Well, that's awesome that you took that extra step. Is that something that a lot of people do in your field? Or do you think that was unique to yourself? No, it's not. And it's something that when I mentor younger veterans, I'm, I'm mentoring a, a woman right now, and she's very kind of like what Hollywood cons would consider not a vet sort of type. She's got a higher voice. She's very small in stature. She's blonde. So I told her, you know, you're never going to be seen as the same type of character that I would as far as I'm barking orders and telling people what to do. But you could easily be seen as, you know, a young soldier who's, who's confused as to what she should do. She's only been in the military a year. She's very impressionable. You need to have something, some sort of clip or something on your reel showing that because the fact is our military service is going to be a ticket into these casting offices. But it's probably not going to get us booked unless we look the part. So use it as the ticket in, show them you're a decent actor. But most of the time they'll say, ah, she's not right for this, but she's good for other things. And you know what? That's fine. If they don't want to cast you as military, fine. Use it to get in the door and then show them your acting skills and they'll bring you in for something else. But I used to get aggravated that to me, it just wasn't enough to get in the door. I was like, well, I want to play military. And it's funny because I never used to book military. And now that's uh, a lot of what I book. So it's funny how that's turned around in the last few years. Do you feel like you're being typecast or you, you know what into typecasting a role? Is? Typecasting means you work. Um, okay. <laughs> so, you know, if someone wants to typecast me, I'm, you know, I'm definitely okay with that. I don't think that I'm typecast because funny enough, I play a ton of military veteran sort of power roles. And then the role I'm second most booked for is victim, which is the complete opposite, which is kind of a weird role to be booked for because I'm six feet tall. So to be able to overcome the physical stature as well, you know, one of the reasons I thought, oh, I'll never book Stranger Things is because I'm so tall. And the character I play in Stranger Things is very much, you know, kind of go along sort of character. And her husband is very verbally abusive, probably physically abusive um, with her and clearly with the son, probably with the daughter as well. And he's just not a great guy. And, um, you know, Will Chase, who plays my husband, is about the same height. So, you know, I, I think I must sell the victim role pretty well to be able to overcome that height issue, you know? Um, so no, I don't, I don't feel that I'm typecast, but even if I was, it's a good thing to be because you're working and 95% of SAG actors are unemployed at any given moment in time. So to be working is a blessing. Well, yeah, I want to talk about it a little bit because you kind of hinted at it now a couple of times where, you know, this is a unique industry where the way you physically appear is a big deal. You kind of mentioned earlier, if they're looking for a five foot two demure person, you're just not going to get it. The other side of it is it's kind of thought of as a lot of actors and actresses in Hollywood are short, right? And then you are six feet tall. And then I'm assuming like if, if we put you in heels, how tall are you then? Oh, six, three. There you go. Okay. So at six foot three. You know, these are things you can't control, right? You physically look a certain way. You can get stronger, you can get leaner, but you can't get shorter. Like that's, you know what I mean? Like you can't do anything about that. Do you feel like it hurts you or is it like? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's absolutely been a detriment, but I'll say this. It's not something, you know, a couple of years ago, I was about 25 pounds overweight. That was something that I said, all right, I'm going to buckle down. I went on keto. I started working out a lot. I got it under control. That was entirely within my control. There's nothing that I can do height wise. And so kind of lamenting about it just is pointless. Occasionally, I will get some sort of role where it calls for that. I did a Dodge truck commercial and uh, I did it as a first responder. So someone my height would, you know, make the truck look a, a normal size. But if it was a woman who was, you know, five feet tall trying to get into this Dodge Ram, then it starts to become comical in the commercial. So <laughs> it was, you know, and with that being said, I don't do car commercials. Why? Because I dwarf the cars. So it's one of those things where it's kind of a, a trade-off. I was a furniture spokesperson for a long time and I did all the stuff in front of the screen, in front of a green screen. And my co-host was shorter. So he did everything in the showroom actually on the furniture, because if I was on the furniture, then it looks like it's some sort of furniture made for little people, right? <laughs> so, you know, people work around it. Uh, the commercials that I book tend to be spokesperson things. So, you know, you don't have a lot of people standing around me, which is fine. There's good things and bad things. I do know that it's a drawback, but I also know that, you know, if I was five, seven, then there's a lot more people who are 5'7". So it ends up being something that people either love or they hate, but they're very rarely meh about it. Now, I know if a production calls my agent and asks to clarify how tall I am, I have lost that because of my height. And I've read varying theories as to why Hollywood is a short place, but mainly what I've heard is child actors grow up to be adult actors, generally actors who are smaller in stature, they want to hire because, you know, if you're a 12 year old who looks 10, they can work you longer hours than if you're 10 and you look 10. So it's this environment where smaller people tend to work more. They tend to get more roles um, as children and then they grow up, have better resumes and they become adult actors and people are just small. So I will not say what movie this was, but I worked on a movie with a very, very short A-lister. And then when the movie came out, you can't even really tell it's me. Why? Because they're not going to ask an A-lister to get on an Apple box so I don't look so tall. And I don't expect them to. I totally understand that. So it has been um, very much a detriment, but I don't wish I was shorter. I don't lament that. It just kind of is what it is, you know? You just got to embrace whatever, like kind of what you talked about before, just you have to embrace who you are because you can't be anything else, right? Oh, absolutely. And I look at all of the things that are good being a tall woman. I mean, if I'm when I'm running, because I'm, I, I'm a long distance runner, when I go running, the odds of someone trying to throw me in the back of a van, good luck with that. Like, <laughs> I wish you all the best of luck. So being a woman in you know a world that is increasingly not really safe for women, I love being tall and I love feeling powerful and I love the benefits that come with that. So I, I wouldn't trade it just to maybe get a couple more acting roles. It, it's not worth it to me. So, you know, you've kind of disclosed a little bit about how you started, uh, you know, overcoming some of the challenges or the rejections that you've had. When did you start feeling like, okay, this is going to work for me? Oh, <laughs> I'm still waiting for that. No, I'm just, <laughs> you know, it's weird as an actor, you have these things where you're like, oh, this is a breakthrough. But then you look back and you say, that wasn't a breakthrough. This was a breakthrough. So I would say 
you know, the first gig you book, you're like, wow. And then the first breakthrough you kind of have in class where you tap into something and there's a revelation, that's a wow. I would say there was a, a show that I worked on in 2011 called FBI Criminal Pursuit. And that was a show where, you know, I was... um in the show, I was raped in the front seat of a car. And then my, the actor who was with me broke a bottle and shoved it against my throat. It was, you know, it was a week of shooting, but it was very, very difficult. It was very violent. It was very um, in depth. When that came out, I was very proud of my work. And that was just, you know, a non-union recreation show. So that was one of those things where I thought, wow, I shot this for seven days and I'm proud of it. And then when I booked my first show in Los Angeles, I booked General Hospital. Then I booked my first co-star, which was on Colony on USA. Then I booked Stranger Things, which of course is a game changer. Then when I booked my guest star on Hawaii Five-0, that was huge. And then of course, when I got my own show on the CW, there's never really like one particular thing for most actors where you say, okay, now I've made it. Unless of course you go from being a nobody to being the lead in a movie um, that goes to theaters. But unless you're dealing with Harvey Weinstein or some sort of situation like that, I don't know how that would ever happen. Or unless it's just, you know, right place, right time, but that's exceedingly rare. So there's these, these goals that you meet and these things that happen that just kind of boost you along the way up that ladder. You kind of bring up a great point. I was thinking about this, trying to think of examples of like how fast I guess it could be taken from you. And, you know, not that I think that he's to be blamed at, and I'm not trying to make a commentary on his acting, but I, I do recall the person from Friday Night Lights, I believe Taylor Kitsch, right? He got the lead in multiple movies and, but they all bombed. And then they were like, oh, you're not going to be the lead anymore. So to kind of like accentuate your point, like, I guess you never know when you're going to make it right. Or be like a Hollywood A-lister, right? Because I'm sure, you know, when you get a lead role in a movie, it feels like you're, you're there, but then that movie doesn't do well. You might be not exactly where you thought you were going to be. Oh, exactly. And, And this is what I'll say about Taylor Kitsch is, you know, I've been in some films that I've watched them and I'm like, you know, that film didn't turn out great. But here's the thing, when you're watching a film, you know, 99% of the feedback I get is good. And I, I'd say I have 1% trolls and people say that movie's horrible. <laughs> what I always tell people is I'm not the writer, director, or editor. So all you can comment on is my acting. And if my acting is good, and sometimes because of the editing, the acting will seem kind of disjointed as well. So all I look at is, you know, how was my acting in that? So Taylor Kitsch, who knows, you know, maybe it, it was a weak storyline or maybe it was bad editing or maybe it was bad casting because sometimes they'll say, oh, we have to have an A-lister name. Even though this other unknown actor would probably be better in this, we need to have this. It's just like, you know, Jessica Chastain and I play very similar types. They're never going to say, let me just put a Jennifer Marshall in because she's a real veteran as opposed to Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain is a name. She's a name actress. She's an amazing actress. And they will always go for her because she's an A-lister. And I totally understand that. So who knows what happened with Taylor Kitsch, but it is one of those things where it could have been something as simple as maybe he wasn't the best actor for the role, but he was the A-lister that best fit whatever it was. And now his career has suffered because of it. Or maybe he walked away. You know, a lot of actors do that. They just get tired of everything that goes on here and they say, I need a break and, and I don't blame them. Yeah. I'm not trying to blame him. I'm just saying like to the outside world, that's what happened. For him. I mean, I'm sure he's been doing other things, but no, just, I understand what you're saying. It's the, yeah. it's the perception of it is like he was on top of the world and now where is he? I absolutely understand. Yeah. So, you know, this is a very difficult industry that you're in. Uh, you're hosting a show. It feels like things are on the up and up. Is this something you think you're going to do for as long as possible? Do you have eyes on other things? Like, give me an idea of where you are today. With your, Are you happy with your acting career? Do you want more out of it? Kind of like, what do you think for yourself of the future? You know, I don't 
think I'm ever committed to doing something for the rest of my life. There's nothing that I've ever found that I've fallen so in love with that I said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Uh, probably with the exception of the Navy, which you still can do for your whole life. You know, you can do it for 20, 30 years and then you have to leave. So um, I really kind of fell into it just as one of those things where it was like, I need to get a job. My list of skills wasn't so great, but I knew <laughs> that I had been an actor and I had had some, you know, moderate success in that based off of where I was at the time. I eventually would like to get into politics. I would like to get into a position where I can represent constituents and really argue for policy change. Uh, I can't speak to this quite yet, but I am involved with a nonprofit um, where I will be lobbying my legislators, my congressperson and my senators to make some serious changes in the veteran world um, in Capitol Hill. And that's something that's very important to me is being able to be the voice for people who don't have a voice. So right now, I will work on lobbying in the future. Um, I would eventually like to make the transition to politics because I feel like now how we are in society, it's very ultra left, it's very ultra right. Mm -hmm. And if you're a moderate, there's no room for you as a moderate. And I feel like without moderates, how do you work across the aisle to get things done? I totally agree. I have friends who call me a socially progressive uh, Republican, and I have friends who call me a fiscally conservative Democrat. I won't say which party I align myself with, but I am very, very much in the middle. And I, I very much believe that our country has to return to a point of civility in order to get anything done. And I champion more veterans running for Congress and Senate and local elections because that's what we should be doing. We were leaders in the military and we should continue that outside of service. Now, you have some interesting things. You mentioned before that you also mentor vets going into uh, civilian life. Is that you still doing that as well? I do. I have uh, right now I have about five official mentees that I work with. Right now I have an official, I have two official official mentees that I work with through a, a nonprofit called American Corporate Partnership. They put veterans with people who are in their field who are in a position to mentor. The mentors are not always vets. In this case, I happen to be. I'm mentoring a young man who got out of the army and he recently moved to Atlanta. He's seeking a career in acting. I'm getting ready to take on another mentor through that organization. And then I mentor three others unofficially. And then of course I'm available for the network of veterans to get a hold of me and say, hey, you know, what do you think I should do? What about this class? Uh, whatever. My email, Facebook, it's always open to vets who may need uh, help, a hand up, not a hand out, but a hand up or just some advice on how to move their career to the next level. No, that's great. And I'm assuming that's something also that you'll continue to do. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, that's one of the things that drives me because I know, you know, in the acting world, I work with a lot of people and they kind of get their fulfillment from, oh, I did this role and it was great and I knocked it out of the park and I, you know, it kind of fulfills the artsy, fartsy sort of part of them. I am very much oriented in service to others. So even if I booked all these roles and I was knocking them out of the park, that's not going to fill the hole in my heart. What fills the hole in my heart is service to others and helping veterans um, avoid some of the pitfalls that I avoided. And I, I had a really good mentor when I came into the business and he helped me avoid some of those pitfalls. So, so I hope to give that back to others. No, that's fantastic. All right. So one of the things we always do with all of our mission daily guests is we also want people to get to know you a little bit better. I'm sure you've probably done similar things. We're going to ask you about your personal life a little bit. Simple things, nothing too crazy. All right. You ready? So what do you do for fun away from work? 
I am the quintessential like 85 year old woman. So, um, <laughs> what do you mean? For fun. I do, a, I do a ton of volunteer work, which people are like, that's not fun. No, it actually is a ton of fun. I do a lot of volunteer work. I scrapbook. I warned you, 85 year old woman. <laughs> uh, I bake and I don't know if it's for fun, but I do work out. I recently started playing basketball again. I had knee surgery last year. I haven't really picked up a basketball since then. And I realized how much I miss it. I miss it so much. So basketball and running are pretty much the only things I do that are not 85 year old woman. All right. So you scrapbook, you bake, you play ball, you run. When you go to the gym, for you just play pickup games or do you play with people you know? No, I just play pickup games. And I honestly, I try to, <laughs> I try to stay away from the 20 year old men playing. Um, <laughs> I try to keep it to the 40 and over leagues. Cause that's kind of where I hang right now. Um, and I'm still playing men. So cut me some slack, but uh, it's okay. Oh no. I tried to play with a bunch of 20 something year olds the other day. And I said, yeah, I just, uh, I'm not in this age bracket anymore. I think I'm going to step out of this and tip my hat to them. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. How about, are you an avid reader? Do you I was going to say, being given in Hollywood, I'm sure you watch a lot of movies and uh, shows. I don't. You don't. I'm actually the worst kind of actor in that way. I, you know, I probably watch four movies a year in the theater, two of which are with my kids because um, I take them to go see something. Is it like a kid's movie that you end up seeing? Yep. Yeah. I don't watch a lot of, I don't have the attention span for it. I don't watch a lot of movies. I don't watch a lot of television. I do what I will do is I will binge something once it's completed because I don't like waiting in between seasons or I will watch something before I have to audition for it. So if it's like, oh, you have an audition for whatever show it is, I'll watch a few episodes of it just to kind of get a feel for the tone of it. But I, my husband and I just finished watching The Americans with Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese. And you know, for those of you who don't know, it was on FX for six seasons. KGB agents have infiltrated America. Such a great show. Love it. But unless I can binge it, I probably won't watch it because I just don't have the patience to wait. I'm with you. Now that we can binge, I don't like cliffhangers because it just bothers me. Like, why do I have to wait till next week? I don't want to wait till next week. <laughs> and sometimes next season. So we get to the next season and I'm like, I don't really remember and I don't really care, to be honest with you. So people like me are killing TV. <laughs> you know, people like me are pushing it into binge format. Yeah. But it is what it is. You know, I just, I can't wait. I don't have the thought process for it. All right. How about this? Do you enjoy or not enjoy seeing yourself on screen? Um, it's kind of a weird question. Um, Some people, they like what they do, of course, but like it's, there's a part of them that makes them feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so forgive me. I didn't mean it was a weird question. I mean that I often hear a weird answer to this Yeah. because people in other, and I feel like it's kind of a false humility people give because I, I know a lot of cops. I know a lot of doctors. I know a lot of, you know, and nobody says, oh, if I see a picture of me doing my job or something, I feel uncomfortable about it. No, it's just a job is a job is a job. So I you know, I watch it. I watch everything that I do because I want to support everyone who worked in the project. It's not some sort of inherent narcissism where I'm like, oh, my performance. No, I, I want to see how everything turned out and show respect to the editor and the director and the writer, the other actors. Um, I don't ever feel uncomfortable with it or when I'm watching it because to me, that's not necessarily Jennifer up there. That's whatever character I have created. And if I do see Jennifer up there, I did not do a good job in creating the character or separating myself enough from the character. There was a, a film I did years ago back when I was having a really difficult time in my life. And I used the grief that I had to kind of power through this role. 
And I'd say that's the only thing that I can't watch without feeling uncomfortable because it's too much Jennifer and not enough the character. So yeah, I would say, I uh, a, no, I'm never really uncomfortable. I think that's a thoughtful answer. Well, the reason why I had to ask is because we've, we've interviewed some people before that are like, let's say they stage actors, for example, they don't want to see footage or athletes and like, ah, I don't really want to see myself play. Uh, you'll, you'll hear things like that every now and then. <laughs> yeah, I, fi- I find that really weird because that's what we do for a living. And I just, I find it odd. And it's funny because one of my friends who's an LAPD officer, he was taking pictures of me on the TV and sending them to me and saying, I see you. And so I said, next time I see you at a traffic stop, I'm going to take a picture of you and send it to you and say, I see you. <laughs> I said it sort of as a joke, but then I found myself taking pictures of my actor friends and sending it to them. So I realized it was done out of pride Yeah. Um, that I was proud of them. So I thought, okay, that's why he did it. He was proud of me. Um, but I still feel like if I ever saw him on a traffic stop, I'd do it just to be funny. <laughs> Sounds good. No, I appreciate it because I mean, I agree with you. You should be proud of your work. You know, just like, you know, do I like listening to the episodes I record? Yeah, I kind of do. <laughs> yeah, why not? That's what Final. you do. That's what you do, you know? Exactly. Final question for you though. What other characters have you been in that are most like you and which characters are like the furthest away from you? Easy, easy peasy question. Okay. Yeah. So Lieutenant Colonel Bailey in Hawaii Five-0. She was a joint mortuary affairs officer who oversaw the dignified transfer of an airman killed in Kabul. She was the most like me um, as far as, you know, she goes, she does her job. She wants this airman to be, you know, treated with respect. She wants his service to be honored. She wants everything to be the way that it should be for one of our brothers or sisters killed abroad. Not to say that that was easy for me to shoot because... Clearly, I cried after we shot. Mm-hmm. But in the scene, Lieutenant Colonel Bailey does this every day. So she's not going to cry because this is what she does. She yeah. clearly feels um, sad about it, just as I would. Um, but that was very easy for me because when I put on that uniform, it's not a costume. I know what each of those ribbons mean. I know what each of the insignia means. When I render that salute, I know what it means. When I look at that casket and I see a flag draped over it. I have had friends return in caskets. I have had friends lose their battle to PTS. So that character is very much me in many ways. Um, Susan Hargrove or Max's mom on Stranger Things is probably the character who is least like me. She allows her husband to speak any old which way to her, which ask my husband, that's not the case. (laughs) Not acceptable. Not acceptable. (laughs) No. um, She allows her husband to act like a tyrant, talk to the kids, however, rule with an iron fist. Um, She's kind of a difficult character for me to play. And honestly, I had to write my own kind of future story for her to be able to kind of stomach how she is. Um, Mm. I had to write that in the future, she whacks him over the head with a vase she kills him. She buries his body under the porch, kind of Dixie Chick style. And she pursues her own life like a powerful woman. And she doesn't put up with his domestic abuse anymore. So I had to do that to be able to play kind of this weak-willed character because it's so unlike who I am. But with that being said, um, working on that set is a dream come true. I love working with them. I love how in-depth the characters are. And I do love playing her. But in order to do her justice and not try to toughen her up, I did have to write that ending for her. Um, and who knows, the ending is probably totally different, you know, what Stranger Things decides for her. But I had to do that in order to make her more well-rounded in my mind. I'll tell you what, that answer that you just gave, writing her ending, exactly tells our audience exactly who you are. And I love it. 
Thank you. <laughs> don't check. Don't if somebody disappears in my life, don't check under my porch. Is that it? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. We're probably going to investigate you a little bit, but <laughs> well, look, I appreciate you joining us today on Mission Daily. I hope you had a good time. I had an amazing time and thank you so much for um, being so flexible with my schedule and, and thank you for taking the time out of your day to spend it with me. Absolutely. And we look forward to these unnamed projects that you're working on. Hey, listen, we know you're working hard. You already said how long you're working. Can't wait to see what it is. Awesome. I'll post on social media, so stay tuned. All right. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.